Good evening, and welcome to the February 8th edition of Eye on the Triangle. I'm your host, Chris Chaffee. Hope you didn't miss us too much last week when we were preempted by a rainout basketball game. We have a great show you for this week, though. We have an interview with Sheila Scott McCoy from the African Studies Department here at NC State. I chatted with Eric Scholes about the WKNC Sessions Program. We have a great piece about why you should buy whole milk. We have a review of the new Decemberist albums, a new installment from the folks of the Joy of Gaming Community Calendar, news, and the Bangor Club will be coming in later to discuss what, to discuss what they're up to this semester. So stay tuned for to 88.1 for Eye on the Triangle. But first, the news. This week in news on Eye on the Triangle. A brief rundown of the latest news. The riots in Egypt have continued despite Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak claiming he will not run for re-election. Sentiments of too little too late still echo through the throngs of protesters who continue to crowd Tahrir Square despite constant attacks from pro-Mubarak supporters. The UN reports that at least 300 people have been killed since violence broke out across the country. In related news, Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme spiritual leader of Iran, praised the Egyptian people for their overthrow in an oppressive regime. Researchers in Japan have trained a retriever that can sniff out bowel cancer in breath and stool samples and is reportedly as accurate as high-tech diagnostic tools. The scientists at Kyushu University used a specially trained female black Labrador to carry out 74 tests over a period of several months. In these tests, the dog achieved 95% accuracy in breath tests and 98% accuracy in stool tests, performing just as well as a colonoscopy without the probing. The Telegraph reports that honeybee collapse may now threaten global food security. In recent years, a frightening number of honeybee colonies have vanished due to the mysterious phenomena of colony collapse disorder. Almost a third of global farm output depends on animal pollination, 80-90% of which comes from honeybees. New research shows that childhood obesity is linked to habits and not heredity, much to the chagrin of lazy parents across the world. The study showed that children who eat school lunches instead of a packed lunch and who spend two hours a day watching TV or playing video games are at a much higher risk of becoming obese than their more physically active counterparts. The presence of obesity among U.S. children ages 6 to 11 has increased from 6.5% in 1980 to 19.6% in 2008, which makes pinpointing the cause of childhood obesity even more important even if it means pointing out the obvious. A study conducted by researchers in Germany found that the best way to remember what you've just studied might be to take a quick nap. In experiments, the researchers showed that the brain is better during sleep than during wakefulness at resisting attempts to scramble or corrupt a recent memory. Researchers have found that those from the sleep group in their experiment retained an average of 85% of the patterns compared to 60% of those who remained awake. For the first time ever, scientists are able to see the entire sun at once, Launched in October 2006, the stereo satellite system traces the flow of energy and matter from the sun to the earth. The two probes are now nearly on opposite sides of the sun, giving scientists invaluable insight into the workings of solar flares and sunspots. For news on Eye on the Triangle, I'm Matt Gardner. Some feel it's- Thanks, Matt. In the last few years, the Krispy Kreme Challenge has become something of a legend here at NC State. The challenge consists of a two-mile run to Krispy Kreme where participants are required to consume a dozen donuts and then they have to run back to the bell tower. This Saturday marked the eighth year that the Krispy Kreme challenge took place and we were there to cover it. Some feel it's gluttonous, others consider it absurd, and some think it's just plain nasty. But one thing's for sure, the Krispy Kreme challenge is a hell of a race. People have said that the challenge is just as important as going to classes to be a true member of the Wolf Pack. The event, which requires participants to run four miles and eat 12 donuts, necessitates a team of organizers and an ungodly amount of donuts. Started by a group of park scholars who wanted to raise money for the North Carolina Children's Hospital, it has grown to a massive event with over 7,500 participants. 
Despite the tremendous hype before the race, the organizers start planning next year's event as soon as the last one is over. Alton Russell, a freshman and one of this year's organizers, explains the history of the challenge. The, the race was started in 2004 by just a few guys who were park scholars who just wanted to run because of cream. They just had the idea for the race and they just completed it. And a couple of years later, they decided to make it into a fundraiser for the um, North Carolina Children's Hospital. So it's pretty much completely run by students at NC State, most of whom are park scholars. I'm on the PR committee, so we just helped get the hype out in the past few months about the contest, and on Saturday I'll be volunteering. The event not only requires preparation, but also execution. Serving 7,500 dozen donuts to hungry runners can be a real challenge, but with the help of volunteers such as Erica Alpeter, the race can go off without a hitch. So for the last two years, I volunteered at the Krispy Kreme Challenge, and I am on site, and I help unload all the pallets of all the donuts, and then we put them on the tables, and then all the thousands of runners come through, and we divvy them out, and then I take home like 50 dozen donuts home afterwards, and it's awesome. Afterwards, what's the cleanup like? Um, afterwards is full of carnage. It's a, it's complete chaos when it's actually happening. After all the runners are gone, the whole ground is covered in crushed cups. There's vomit everywhere. There's piles of donuts. There's It's just it's chaos and gross and disgusting. But you go around, you get gloves, and you just go and pick up all the stuff because you really don't want to drive around and see vomit everywhere. So we help clean it up. Runners and volunteers are important to the challenge, but they would be nowhere without the donuts. Around the clock in the run-up to the event, Krispy Kreme employees, like Marcus, the second ship supervisor, are working hard to make too many donuts. We have people boxing, like, throughout that night, throughout that morning, like, people from second, third shift, everybody's here, like, in the morning. I think it's fun. It's a nice little thing that Krispy Kreme does. It's, it's nothing that I would do running from state, but, I mean, I, I think it's pretty cool. I saw it one time. It was, it was, was kind of nasty. So this year, on a rainy and cold Saturday morning, the racers lined up to take their places at the start. Some practiced, some didn't. Some were just there to spectate. And now, are you actually doing the Christmas Cream Challenge? Absolutely, yes. And do you think you will complete the challenge? Absolutely, yes. And have you been practicing for the challenge? No. Okay. <laughs> As the runners approach the Krispy Kreme at the corner of Peace and Person Streets in downtown Raleigh, they tried several different techniques to gobble down donuts as fast as humanly possible. You're exhibiting the dunk and eat technique that has been popularized by several people. Now tell us about how it's working for you. It makes it go down a lot easier. You have to do less chewing, but it makes it a lot worse. It's not a good donut anymore. This is my third year. I got like nine and a half the first year, and then just like six the second year. I kind of wussed out, so... Maybe this was my year. What exactly are you doing? Okay, he's eating, apparently. Compacting and lubricating. Compacting and lubricating. That's what it's all about. <laughs> so you are exhibiting the stack and uh, and chow down technique. How is it going? Mm, it's going all right. thing is, with this, I heard this uh, it was the best strategy. Stack it together, get some water, get the sugar off, and then you cannot eat these individually. So you're now eating all of the donuts in one giant handful. All 12 of them, actually. All 2,400 calories, yeah. How do you feel about this so far? Have you been making good progress? I think I'm, I think I'm going to kill like two donuts with this, but right. I'm not sure yet. Most runners would agree that the run back to the bell tower is the hardest part, not only due to the donuts sloshing in the bellies of some runners, but also the uphill return. Yeah, it was the best. 
I feel better than ever. I'm feeling strong. I feel strong. Are all 12 donuts in, in you? Oh, yeah. Here's the box. Exhausted, <laughs> huh? No, I'm feeling good. Donuts give me my special powers. <laughs> if there's not donuts in your mouth, you like never want to put any more in because it's so horrendous to keep shoving them down. But so tasty and glazed. Mm. So you're like really peppy and enthused after eating donuts and running four miles. Like, why are you still so excited? Because I love donuts! Yeah! Eat more donuts. <laughs> Keep them down. It's worse when you throw them up. How do you feel? Uh, not too good. <laughs> the donuts are churning up a storm down there, man. Uh, are you going to like, quote, hold it down, as they say? Uh, two years ago, I tried to throw them up, but I couldn't. So I guess that means, yes, I am going to hold it down. How was the race this year? I know you've done this in the past. Like, Has your strategy changed? No, the basic strategy is you run as fast as you can up to the donut place, eat the donuts as quick as you can, and then you can usually have enough time to walk and run back, which is what I did today. The donuts were never anything that I trained for, so they did not help my run. You've never even heard of this until this year, right? Yes, yeah, first time I already heard it. And what did you think the first time you heard about it? These people are f***ing stupid. <laughs> Asses. How do you feel now? They're still f***ing stupid. <coughs> Those are gross, though, like wet, soggy donuts. They're already all gushy, but man. Bad mouthfeel. Now, will you do this next year? Probably. The Krispy Kreme Challenge's popularity is growing. In fact, Florida State, the University of Kentucky, and the University of Kansas all have their own versions, inspired by the best and brightest here at NC State. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you are, that means the challenge is here to stay. Until next year, I'm Chris Chaffee. And I am Mark Herring. The time is 7.09, and you are listening to Eye on the Triangle. And just a quick tidbit before we move on. Our very own Mark Herring got 31st place overall in this year's challenge. Ah, and we now turn our attentions to the, the happenings of NC State and beyond with Tyler Varanin and her community calendar. Good evening, Tyler. What do you have for us this week? Hope everyone enjoyed their weekend. Whether you participated in the Soggy Sweet Phil Krispy Kreme Challenge, the Double Barrel Benefit, or enjoyed the nice weather on Sunday. Campus Movie Fest sign-up is this week. Now is your chance to show you what you can do as a director of your own short film. This February, NC State is bringing back Campus Movie Fest for another film competition. This event offers students the chance to make their own movies and win prizes in the world's largest student film festival. Each team of students that registers will be provided a lunar Apple laptop, an HD video camera, and technical support. They will have one week to make a five-minute masterpiece. Submissions will be judged, and the top movies will be showcased at a campus movie fest. Final celebration, red carpet and all. Prizes include iPads, cash, pitched meetings in Hollywood, and the opportunity to meet movie and TV industry luminaries, well as the chance to enter the regional and national competitions. Register at campusmoviefest.com. Tai Chi is this Thursday night from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. Get involved with a different type of physical and mental activity. It is held every Thursday night in the Court of Carolinas. Go check out NC State's very own Art at the Gregg Museum of Art and Design. Traces Mapping a Journey in Textiles features 12 international artists working with the idea of placing their work using unique materials and technology. A symposium will be held in conjunction with Traces, examining using textiles as communicating life paths. State artists participating include College of Design professor Vita Plume and Susan Brandles. 
and the Dean of College of Textiles, Blanton Godfrey. Also newly opened is the Pool of the Moon, recent work by Barbara Lee Smith, which focuses on painting and collaging polyester, non-woven fabric 3D effects. Both exhibits run through May 14th. Civil Wars will be at the Poorhouses Thursday, February 10th at 8.30 p.m. Also at the Poorhouses Week, Modern Skirts will be there on Friday starting at 11 p.m. Remember, Valentine's Day is this Monday. Don't forget about your Valentine. Have a great week. Thanks, Tyler. And all those events to sound great. The time is 7.12, and it is time for weather with Patrick DeVore. What's the weather going to be like for the next few days, Patrick? Well, for those of you snow lovers out there, it looks like your luck may be running out this week. Your chances for accumulating snow improve tonight with our low getting down to the low 20s, about 22. So make sure if you're heading out, grab a jacket because it's going to be cold. It'll help lower the ground temperatures, ensuring that what does fall will stick around for a little while. Uh, tomorrow will be will start out clear with a few upper-level clouds, but these clouds will more clouds will build into the area as the day goes on. Calm winds will help temperatures rebound from our cold overnight lows into the mid-40s. The first signs of our snow system show up Wednesday night, with areas to the north and west being the first ones to see some light flurries. If any snow does fall Wednesday night, don't expect it to stick around long, as lows will barely be below freezing about uh, 31 degrees. Tuesday or Thursday morning will be on and off snow. The majority of the area will see a light dusting that will stick to grassy surfaces, but not to roadways. The farther south and east you go, the more snow that you can expect to see. While some local areas around here may see heavier amounts than a dusting to an inch, this will be the exception and not the rule. The snow will continue early into the afternoon, but with our highs getting back up into the upper 30s and lower fort, upper 30s and lower 40s, whatever does hang around will melt away by late afternoon. The system will then move off the coast, taking away any chances of precipitation, as well as the majority of our cloud cover, helping us to drop low on Thursday night. Into the mid-20s, and any leftover moisture could refreeze, so make sure you're careful Friday morning. Our temperatures on Friday get back to normal with highs about 50 under partly cloudy skies, but that's just the start of our roller coaster weather, as we could be looking at highs in the mid-60s this weekend. Thanks so much, Patrick. You're listening to 88.1 WKNC. Now, for the last four years, or for the last few years, WKNC has been taking bands into Caldwell Lounge over on East Campus and recording them live in a program called Sessions. This week, I caught up with Eric Scholes, director of the Sessions program, to talk about what Sessions is and how it works here on NC State's campus. After that, we're going to take a break. However, when we come back, we will have an interview with Dr. Sheila Smith-McCoy. There will be the Joy of Gaming podcast. Kyle Jones will catch us up on why whole milk is wholesome. We will have a review of the new Decemberists album. We will have a brand new This Week in History, and there will be much, much more. So stay tuned right here on 88.1. Today, I'm sitting next to Eric Schultz here in the closed production studio at WKNC, and we're talking a little about um, sessions, but first, Eric Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Eric Scholes. I'm the director of sessions at KNC. We recently uh, headed up the Double Barrel Benefit 8 compilation project, and we're excited to start moving forward. Yeah, so tell us a little about what sessions is and how it works. Basically, we have live recording sessions with local musicians. They come in, play a live set, and later on I post a blog post about it and release the live set under Creative Commons so listeners can log on and, and download the tracks. So how did it all come about? Well, session started a while ago with, uh, with DJ Stevo way back before I was here, and it was, and it was his idea to kind of serve the local music community in another dimension from just playing their music on air. So uh, it, it was his really cool idea, and he did a great job of starting everything up, and I was really pleased to, uh, to to follow that. Now, where do sessions take place usually? 
sessions always take place in Caldwell Lounge, which is right here on NC State's campus. And uh, as of now, that's that's the location. I mean, there's definitely opportunity to do do it in uh, other places. Uh, hopefully, someday closer to WKNC Studio, or even you know, if we eventually get a bigger space. But you know, that's possibly far down the road, and you never know. As you mentioned earlier, this year session's big focus was on the Double Barrel Eight compilation. How did that work? How did the recording process work? Who was on it? How did you get it all put together? Well, it was actually really a hugely ambitious project, more ambitious than sessions usually is, because we had eight sessions over the course of the semester, actually seven sessions over the course of the semester. Fall semester, correct. Right, which was um, Influential, Kid Future, Cassis Orange, The Old Ceremony, Luego, Bright Young Things, and Yard Work. Yeah, there's there's your seven. So we had seven sessions over the over the course of the semester, and that's that's a little bit around the normal sessions, uh, around the normal number of sessions in a semester. But it was you know it was it was full production. We were making a CD. It was a little bit different than just doing live sessions, and it was it was a lot of fun. It was really really uh, great to work with the different dynamics of the different groups and play around with the different styles. But overall. It was just a unique project, and it was like a really cool new task to to take on with Sessions. Now, what is Sessions going to look like this semester? Now, we've, we've finished the compilation. We're not going to be under that kind of pressure this semester to like put out a product at the end of the semester. What is it going to look like? Do you have bands lined up already? Not yet, but, um, but chances are Sessions will look a little bit like Sessions did in the past with the, with the blog posts every couple of weeks. And um, there's already talk of taking on some other ambitious projects. And, you know, I won't mention anything right now, but we're always talking about about doing new, unique things and kind of broadening the scope of sessions rather than just doing uh, blog post after blog post. Because I, I find it really exciting to keep keep branching out and keep finding new ways to do what we do and, and to use our talent and ambition to uh, to get more local music out there. So we're always talking about new ideas. 88.1 WKNC. The Joy of Gaming is a semi-weekly podcast here out of the Technician uh, established by Rich Lepore. Um, and he also compiles a little bit of a current events video game segment for Eye on the Triangle. And we will be playing that right now. The Joy of Gaming podcast is recorded twice a month here at NC State, covering games and the gaming industry from a unique perspective. I'm Rich Lepore. And I'm Tim McNeil, and the following is a brief snippet from the Joy of Gaming podcast, a rundown of the latest events in the gaming world. First up, Sony unveils PlayStation's NGP, or Next Generation Portable. This is only a code name, like Nintendo's Revolution or Dolphin, so the final name of the new handheld is still unknown. The PlayStation NGP will be released in Japan this holiday season, and probably soon after in the States. Some of the announced features so far are 3G, 3G, 3G support, an OLED, which is a nearly high HD resolution touchscreen on the front, two analog sticks, finally, a six-axis motion sensor like in the PlayStation 3 controllers, and a front and rear view cameras. Possibly the coolest feature is a rear-facing touchpad, allowing gamers to touch and interact directly with the game without their fingers getting in the way of the action on screen. It's almost as if Sony has taken a page from Nintendo's innovation playbook as the rear-facing pad is an all-new, never-before-considered feature in handhelds. Some launch titles of note, uh, there's going to be an Uncharted Portable, Metal Gear Solid 4 has been announced, a new Call of Duty game, Lost Planet 2, 
and Little Big Planet. The system also includes backwards compatibility with PSP games, but there will be no UMD port, so the games must be downloaded again. Probably have to pay for it, too. Analysts put the price at between $300 and $350, which, with some saying $400 is possible, which seems like kind of a lot, Tim. Yeah, I mean, that's more than, like, a console itself going for the price. I think that's going to be sort of the killer for it. Yeah, it's 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 really a tall order. And another thing that I've been hearing is going to be a, uh, going to be a potential system killer is the fact that Game, making games, you know, has become prohibitively expensive for anything but the biggest, biggest companies. Yeah, and with a hand handheld, is used to be their 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 sanctuary where they could go and make lower cost development games. And now the handhelds, you know, both the 3GS, which is going to have roughly Wii grade graphics, I've heard, or GameCube yeah. Wii somewhere around there, and and now this, which is going to be nearly, it's going to they say it's going to be similar to PS3 launch title quality. But yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that means a lot of money is being going to be spent on every single game, which means they could probably have less overall. But that had normally, as you mentioned before, was the strategy of how they made money is just get lots of games out there. Right. And it cuts down on innovation and it also cuts down on the number of, you know, cool titles we get per year. So, but yeah, but we'll see. I mean, it could be really, really cool. could be really great. It's got a nice idea so far. It looks really cool. Yeah. They definitely make the sexiest handhelds <laughs> if you've seen the pictures. On a different note, Joe Baca, who is a Democrat from California, is currently trying to pass the Video Game Health Labeling Act of 2011. This act calls for a label to be placed on all potentially violent video games, and it will say, Warning, excessive exposure to violent video games and other violent media has been linked to aggressive behavior. So that we have to, like, stop this from happening at all costs. Yeah, I mean, this may seem like it's not a big deal, um, but you got to consider people who don't play games, and when they see that sort of warning on a game they may buy for their kids, they're not going to buy it at all. And that cuts sales a lot. Um, also, a lot of the research, uh, the label's kind of misleading, misleading because a lot of the research is aggressive behavior while you're playing the game, but nothing afterwards, and it doesn't say anything about that. So it kind of makes it look like you're going to go, I don't know, rob a bank or something like that. And it's, It kind of reminds me of those uh, cigarette ads in like Australia where they just straight up say smoking kills and they show like black lungs on the box. Yeah. It's a little overboard. I don't yeah. know. And finally, the Carolina Games Summit is happening in Goldsboro, North Carolina on February 5th, and it is the Carolina's largest game convention, but... Uh, it may be their only one. We're not quite sure on that. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be a lot of game tournaments going on. There's going to be a lot of industry speakers, including people from Red Storm and Virtual Heroes. Last year, they had some people from Insomniac. Um, and the whole f- convention is kind of focused on people looking to break into the industry. So there's a lot of industry insiders telling you tips and stuff. So uh, you've been a couple years now? Yeah, this will be the third year that I've been going. It sounds like a pretty cool scene. It's no MAGFest, but... Yeah, I don't like it as much as MAGFest because there's not as much to do just in, like, free time. There's well, not, like, there's a There's not as much room. anything, is there? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on. Oh, there's okay. a lot of panels, and there's a lot of tournaments. But if you want to do something besides that, you're kind of shit out of luck. How many days long is it? It's only one day. Okay. So it's a little it's a little more limited. No sleeping over. Yeah, and there's no sleeping over. It's, it's sort of a thing where it's just, like, if you want to go find and talk to some people who work in the industry and get some tips, it's it's... Focus towards students who want to get into the gaming industry and are going to that at the community college. Well, that sounds great. Um, to find out more about the Joy of Gaming podcast, go to technicianonline.com slash features. And be sure to email us at rtlepore at ncsu.edu with any questions. That's rtlepore at ncsu.edu. Um, you can give us questions, comments, or ideas to improve the show. Until next week, we'll see you. Bye. 88.1 WKNC, you are listening to Island the Triangle, and the time is 7.25. By the way, the opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of the contributors and not the expressed uh, concern of WKNC. Now, 
When I stare at milk in my local grocery store, I'm presented with many questions. How am I supposed to make the right choice? Well, Kyle Jones, our food fashionista, is about to set the record straight. And after that, Sarah Hagel will be reviewing the new December albums. So keep it locked to WKNC. Just about everyone drinks milk. So unless you're lactose intolerant, it's very likely you've been consuming cow's milk on a regular basis your whole life. What is just as likely is that you and your family have been stocking your fridge with a jug of reduced fat milk. What I'll explain to you is why you need to ditch your gallon of 2% and get back to whole milk. Depending on the breed of cow, the homogenized milk that you consume is comprised of roughly 4% fat. And yet, man figured out a way to reduce that percentage to practically nothing. But don't you think that Mother Nature made milk the way it is on purpose? The answer to that is a resounding yes. And what you may not know is that the fat present in milk has a wide range of impressive functions. For example, milk is popular because of its calcium and protein content. Well, without milk fat, our bodies cannot efficiently absorb the calcium or digest the protein. Additionally, milk is a well-known source of vitamins A and D. But guess what? They're fat-soluble. That means they need fat in order for your body to dissolve and use them. It's pretty interesting that you can walk into a grocery store and find skim milk that advertises that it's fortified with vitamins A and D. That sounds great, but it's all a ruse, and we now know that's ridiculous because your body can't efficiently use those vitamins without fat. There are a multitude of additional benefits to drinking whole milk that include support to your immune system, increased cell metabolism, and brain function. But why are these alternatives to whole milk so prevalent in the market? It's because of a low-fat craze that started in the early 80s. For a long time, doctors were telling patients that fats and sugars were the enemies when it came to heart disease and other health-related problems. But instead of reducing the bad fats and promoting the intake of good fats in our diets, people swore off fat altogether. We now know better, and most of us are aware of things like omega-3, 6, and 9 fatty acids and how to get them. But a lot of people are still afraid of fat, and companies take advantage of that by advertising products to be fat-free, or no trans fat, or no saturated fat, etc. In fact, I recently saw a package of blueberries that advertised that they were fat-free. Of course they're fat-free. That should be a no-brainer. But it made me wonder if their sales were better off than that of their competitors. And sadly, I would not be surprised if they were making more money because of it. So to wrap things up, the next time you need milk for your frosted flakes, don't forget why you're better off purchasing whole milk. And remember, fat is your friend. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Kyle Jones. The December celebrated their decade of making music together with the January 18th release of their sixth full-length album, The King is Dead. The Portland, Oregon natives are known for their mix of indie, folk, and rock music, all packaged under a chilling yet soothing voice of Colin Malloy. The new album offers another genre blend that wasn't prominent on former albums. The influences of Americana and blues are unmistakable during each new track. The six-piece band plays an array of over 14 instruments, including the organ, piano, violin, and harmonica. In addition to the band members, guests Peter Buck of R.E.M. and indie folk star Gillian Welch also appear on the new album. Despite the mass amount of instruments and bodies, each song has deep layers of music without any part sounding too odd or random. The Portland, Oregon natives are known for their mix of indie, folk, and rock music, all packed Don't Carry It All, starts off the album with a blast from Malloy's harmonica to immediately set the mood of The King is Dead. All of the instruments complement one another. Sarah Watkins harmonizes with Malloy on the choruses, which turn out to be a common tool used throughout the album. The second track picks up the tempo and adds interesting lyrics, which are an aspect of the Decemberist that any fan immediately recognizes. Their lyrics consist of clever rhymes and vocabulary-building words virtually every time. 
Down by the Water and Rocks in a Box are truer to older Decemberist music. The first features harder cymbals, harmonies in all the right places, and musical build-ups to engage the listener. This is one you'll sing along to first. The latter is also catchy, but it has an older feel to it, laced with sharp guitar licks and accordion. January Hymn reminds me of Dave Matthews' band. It's slower, with heavy reliance on acoustic guitar and voice. With a shaker, lyrics like, April, all an ocean away. Is this a better way to spend the day? keeping the winter at bay, paint a scene of someone deep in thought, retracing their choices. With a shaker as the only percussion, the listener focuses on the lyrics and gets lost in thought. This Is Why We Fight is another track that has more of a rock feel than country. The lyrics are choppier and repetitive, making a point and getting straight to it. Come the war, come hell, paired with choruses containing, and when we die, we will die with our arms unbound, has a political air to it. The last 45 seconds of the song feel like listening to someone playing guitar from another room. Overall, this album is not what I was expecting, but I enjoyed it. They embrace their Americana roots and run with it. This is right up the alley of fans of Bob Dylan and Neil Young. The vocals, wide range of instrumentation, lyrics, and genre variation will reach a wide listener range. Although it strays from the rockier center of traditional Decemberist music, The King is Dead is definitely worth a listen. You're listening to I'm the Triangle here on WKNC. And as you probably know, February is Black History Month. And in commemoration of this time, I sat down with Dr. Sheila Smith-McCoy, one of our best and brightest African-American studies teachers here at NC State. We discussed what the AFS program is like here, as well as some of her personal experiences growing up in Raleigh during a tough time for public schools. Our discussion lasted only an hour, and it was extremely interesting. But here is some of our chat. Today, I am joined here at WKNC Close production studios with uh, Dr. Smith-McCoy. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Smith-McCoy. I am an associate professor of English here at North Carolina State, and I direct the Africana Studies program. I also edit a journal of African-American and, I'm sorry, African diaspora literature called Obsidian that's published out of our English department. So go state. Most certainly. Talk a little about the African-American Studies program here at NC State. African-American Studies program offers a major and a minor, um, and we are an interesting program in that we're interdisciplinary, so students have an opportunity to focus on the study of Africa and the African diaspora in a way that helps them be engaged not only intellectually but also within their various constituent communities. Um, We also offer a wide range of study abroad programs, so our students have had the opportunity just since 2009, to travel to Tanzania, to Ghana, to Togo, and Benin. Um, and this year, we'll be adding a, a couple of other study abroads, one in Botswana, which will be very interesting. So it gives students an opportunity to de-essentialize Africa um, in a way that is not really offered in other programs here on campus. Interesting. Now, what is the word diaspora mean? Diaspora is the movement of a people from a place of origin. So there are many diasporas. But for particularly of interest in people from Africa, the African diaspora began mostly with the transatlantic slave trade and created the Caribbean and much of the interactions in the New World. So there are many diasporas, but I think one of the most significant ones is the African diaspora. 
what is contained in the African Studies uh, literary magazine that is created here at NC State? And how is it distributed widely throughout the country? Oh, yes. We have an international distribution, actually. And we focus on uh, issues relating to literature and culture from throughout the African continent and anywhere uh, in the African diaspora. So, for instance, we've done special issues on uh, Afro-British writing. We've done special issues on particular authors. Um, we're really proud of our last issue on Pearl Clegg. And we're about to bring out an issue that has particularly significance to me in that we're wholly focused on writers of African descent who live or write or who have come into their writing abilities here in North Carolina. So we've got some award-winning authors involved in this volume, and it should be going to press any moment now. And it truly seems like the African-American Studies program has a lot going for it. I really want to focus our interview today, though, on Black History Month. It is the 1st of February. How did Black History Month get started? Okay, and I'll also add some anecdotal information for you as well, because um, African-American History Month has an interesting personal history for me as well. It was actually begun... um, as the brainchild of Carter G. Woodson, who is typically known as the father of African-American history. Woodson was born in 1875. He was the son of people who had been enslaved. And at the age of 19 or 20, having taught himself grammar, English grammar, he entered high school, finished a four-year program in less than two years, and then went forward to get a master's and a PhD. His PhD came from Harvard University. And one of the things that struck him as a scholar of history was how little uh, of African and African-American history was available, uh, even for people who were educated at the most prestigious institution uh, in the country. So Woodson, in 1926, formed an organization called the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. And it was in 1926 that he proposed to begin a week uh, celebration of African-American history to educate people about African-American history. It is indeed a history that is a part of American history, but it's also a history that has been largely suppressed and continues to be a history that um, we often uncover. We've uncovered new information in in just the last uh, several years about um, rebellions of enslaved people that have been suppressed. So part of his his um, his movement was to recover this hidden history. And so there's been a large movement since then. It was not until 1976, the bicentennial year, the year that I happened to graduate from high school, that the Black History Week became became Black History Month. Woodson originally said it in February to reverence uh, some of the people who were born in February, Frederick Douglass being amongst those that list of people that he wanted to venerate by setting this, this study of history in February. And in the wake of the Wake County School Board's um, uh, issues relating to what I would call resegregating Africa, of the schools in Wake County, I was educated in Wake County in Cary High School. And during the time that I was there, we had a Black History Week celebration in which we were allowed to decorate one hallway of one building. Uh, Cary High School is, at the time was a, a high school that was set up in, in several different long buildings. It's changed a little bit since the 90,000 years since I've graduated. But invariably, we would set up our displays in the one hallway that was sort of scattered off the beaten path. And invariably, they would be torn down the next day. And so for much of that week, we would spend our time uh, correcting and and fixing things that had been destroyed by people who simply did not understand African-American history, the purpose of the week, 
And that was sad on a number of levels because that meant they didn't also understand American history because African-American history is a part of our shared history as Americans. Um, and I think um, once that becomes widely recognized, some of the resistance that we felt at that time and continue to feel um, might actually dissipate. And so in 1976, when it became Black History Month, it was personally meaningful for me, um, being that it was a bicentennial year. And there was a lot of hope for um, America and African America at that time with the freedom of uh, with movements going on to help try to free and end apartheid that began in earnest in 1976 with American institutions and children and school children and high school children trying to advocate for us to to move and pull away from apartheid South Africa. And so it was a, a, a time of great hope. And I think uh, African history, African American History Month is something that we should all celebrate because it helps us understand that shared history and that shared consciousness. Very much so. So looking forward, how does one uphold African-American history and the legacy of Black History Month now in 2011 when we're, you know, desegregated and colorblind and all, that, and all those words that, you know, mean very little? How, how does that legacy, how do we uphold that legacy as um, a society? We must. We simply must. Because as I tell my students, um, when we're dealing with race in America, often we find we come back to the point of first contact that, ooh, you know, uh, African-Americans are this way. Gee, I never knew. Uh, I, there's always a point of discovery about each other racially. And that mechanism is something that American culture has been very good at because we do suppress our moments of history and those moments of engagement. Now, there, there are reasons for that. Um, there's a weight of guilt about the racial history of this country that many Americans who identify as white don't know what to do with, don't know how to dissipate. Uh, not all white Americans share this burden, but many people who don't understand the importance of African-American History Month and even those who do feel the weight of that shared history in, in a way um, that is very difficult to deal with. So part, I think, what would sustain African-American History Month is helping us talk about those things um, that we don't talk about racially. We pretend that, you know, post-apartheid and post-Obama that we live in a non-racial society when everywhere we look, race is reinforced. And it's reinforced in a way that sets up a hierarchy that um, isn't good for America, nor those people who would identify necessarily as African-Americans. And so I think it is important for us to do that. In fact, I do teach a course called Post-Apartheid, Post-Obama, and we look at race and how it's configured not only in this country, but in other spaces of the world. And I think it's critical to um, our purpose as Americans as we move forward at a time when we see a lot of retrenchment in our political system, in our educational systems, that really threatens to take us back to a period of time that I would not want to um, relive, let me put it that way. Certainly. Well, as we wind down this interview, is there anything left that you feel that the listeners should know um, that I haven't asked you yet? There are a number of different celebrations of uh, African-American history that will be happening throughout campus and throughout your communities. So I would encourage your listeners to, to look at what's being offered here on campus. For the African-American Studies Program, we are continuing our ninth annual African Diaspora Film Festival. Our next film will be on February the 1st, and it will run through February the 16th. We had our kickoff on January the 19th, and it gives people an opportunity to look at 
African and African diaspora cultures in, through films and through discussions that would not largely be available otherwise. But I would encourage students, no matter what your ethnic, national, or racial origin, and indeed any of your listeners, to take advantage of this opportunity to learn more about our shared history. And if we think of it in that way, it's all of our responsibilities. Now, where are the movies taking place? All the films will be shown here at Witherspoon Cinema, and they're free and open to the public. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris, and have a great day. And we're back, and the time is 7.41. Have you ever what happened this week in history? Well, our next segment with Dave and Nick will get just to that quandary. And after that, Mark Herring will sit down with the Bonger Club to talk a little about what they do here at NC State. So stay tuned to I'm the Triangle, only here on 88.1 WKNC. Hello, and welcome to This Week in History. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. This week in 1689, William of Orange and his wife Mary were proclaimed co-rulers of England in what is known as the Glorious Revolution, so-called because no blood was shed in the transfer of power. The duo was generally well-liked and signed the English Bill of Rights in 1689. Also in this week, in 1693, the College of William and Mary was granted its charter. In 1861, Jefferson Davis was elected the President of the Confederate States of America by a Confederate convention on February 9th. He actually found out that he was President on February 10th. In 1870, the Young Man's Christian Association, otherwise known as the YMCA, was founded. The World Alliance of YMCAs is headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. It would be another 108 years before the village people were to record that hit song that everyone knows the chorus to. Back in 1910, the Boy Scouts of America was incorporated, making last year the organization's 100th birthday. Since then, over 110 million people have become members, less than 2% of which have become Eagle Scouts. America was first introduced to the Beatles in 1964 when they performed on The Ed Sullivan Show. It was the first of three appearances on the show and was viewed by over 40% of Americans. They played five songs, two of which became number one hits in the U.S. In 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from prison in South Africa after 27 years of incarceration. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993 and then was elected president in 1994. In 1996, the IBM supercomputer known as Deep Blue defeated world champion Garry Kasparov in a game of chess. Kasparov ended up winning the match, proving that there is hope for the future war against machines. Unfortunately, Deep Blue defeated Kasparov in their 1997 rematch. And now for your birthdays of the week. Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense, the pamphlet that rallied the revolutionary cause, was born in 1737. In 1773, William Henry Harrison, our nation's ninth president, was born. He holds two records for the presidency. For one, he had the shortest term to date, 32 days. This was because of his second record. He was the first president to die in office. Charles Darwin, born in 1809, is a British naturalist famous for his book on the origin of species. In 1834, Dmitry Mendeleev, creator of the periodic table, was born. He died before a formal diagnosis for OCD could be given. William Tecumseh Sherman, born in 1820, was a general for the Union in the Civil War. He is known for his scorched earth policy that he implemented in his march across the South, which ended with the capture of Fort Savannah in Georgia. John Williams, born in 1932, is a renowned Hollywood composer and the only man capable of making two notes into, into a recognizable soundtrack. His most notable works include the Star Wars saga, the Superman series, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, and yes, Dave, Jaws. All right, let's run through some deaths. 
1587, Mary Queen of Scots was beheaded. What a downer. In 1989, James Bond died. The ornithologist, not the spy. Although, this man was in fact the inspiration for the name of Ian Fleming's character. Somewhere around 270 AD, St. Valentine was sentenced to death by Roman Emperor Claudius the Cruel because Claudius had outlawed marriages and Valentine had been secretly carrying out weddings. He was clubbed, stoned, and then beheaded. And just so we don't end on that morbid note, we'll end with the birthday of my favorite president, Abraham Lincoln. Born on the same day as Charles Darwin, February 12, 1809, he lived in multiple lob cabins before taking residence in the White House. He grew to a staggering six foot five inches, and with the hat, it rounds out to about seven feet. He was president during the Civil War and issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862. Well, that's all the knowledge we've got for you this week. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. Thanks for listening, and keep it historical. Raleigh. Okay, so I'm joined here in the studio by two guys in the Bunker Club. Could you please introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Chirag Tucker, captain. I'm Varun Goswami, captain as well. So could you guys explain what exactly Bhangra is? Bhangra is a, it's a traditional dance from the northern hemisphere of India. It originated in a region called Punjab. So basically, like, it's a you know, way of life in Punjab. It's a type of dance that expresses your culture and the way people live. And a lot of the moves originated from like the farmers in the region. So every move kind of describes different different ways the farmers farmed the land, per se. Okay, so it was more of a, a common people's dance, it, celebrating the everyday things in normal life. Yes, yeah. So pretty much, yeah. Like it was basically like everyday part of life. And okay, so could you uh, describe bringing Bangra to NC State? So it started back in 06, 2006. Our former captain Vinay Patel, he started the team and. He wanted to kind of get the culture brought to NC State because a lot of the colleges around the area like had teams, say uh, UNC has a Bungar team, ECU had one, Duke has one. So, you know, we thought, why why not start one over here too? We want to, you know, be competitive and be the best college around the area. Definitely. Could you explain how you practice and how you recruit dancers? Yeah, so we, we hold tryouts in uh, both fall and spring. And practices are held, you know, depending on the competition. So say last semester we had a competition in November which is uh, called Ajka the Maka. It's held in Chapel Hill. And so we held tryouts in August, about the first week of school, when school started. And then we, uh, we you know, picked up how many dancers. We need about four dancers. We picked up four dancers and started choreographing the routine and teaching them the routine. And we had practice about three hours a day, three times a week. How many dancers are on the team? We have uh, six guys and six girls. Okay, it's co-ed? It's co-ed team, yes. And for the most part, is every dancer featured in every dance? Yes, every dancer is featured in every dance. Nobody leaves the stage at any point in time. Okay, cool. And could you uh, describe some of the dances? Because I know that it's not just human movement. You guys have some props. Yes, we have props, and we every dance is like, there's a different name for it. So there's a prop called the sup. It's the one that makes a loud noise, and that's supposed to represent like thunder and lightning in like the farming lands. And that's kind of like an accordion sort of. Yeah, it's like the accordion wooden. fence type thing. Okay. Yeah. And it makes a snapping sound. Yeah, it okay. makes a very loud sound. And you also have canes, I believe? Well, yeah, we have canes too. I'm not really sure what that represents, but it's just another prop we use. And could you um, describe the traditional garb that you wear? Yes. So we have, we have uh, these things called chadre. That's like the kind of the skirt thing we wear on our waist. Uh, we have the corta. That's like the main 
t-shirt. It's like a long t-shirt type thing we wear. And then we have the vest that goes over the, the, the kurta. The, and then we also have the turbans. The, those are called bugs. And the turban is traditional Punjabi. Yes, yes. Traditional Punjabi. You know, India is a very diverse place. Yes. Uh, it's not a monolith. How is that expressed through through Bhangra? Because Bhangra is very specific to Punjab, mm-hmm. but people don't have to be Punjabi to do it, correct? Not at all. Not at all. We don't discriminate like that. Anybody can do it. Like my friend right here, Chirag Tucker, he's Gujarati, and he's probably one of the better Bhangra dancers I've seen. Yeah, Gujarati is the, it's another state in India. Yeah, it's another state in India. Like, you know, I'm Punjabi, I'm from Punjab, he's Gujarati, he's from Gujarat. So anybody can do Bhangra. Uh, it's just... It depends what your liking is. Now, we're going to play a clip, and when we come back, can you guys tell us a little bit about it? Of course. For those of you listening, you probably had the impression that, or the music for Bhangra would be very traditional, but that had a lot of hip-hop and... uh, bass beats in there how do you dance to that well bummer music is usually it's usually very traditional and what we try to do is bring a modern flair to it so it's entertaining and it's fun for absolutely anybody that watches it what you heard right there there was a the beat was very slow in the beginning which represents more traditional bhangra what we did is we sped that beat up and uh we choreographed a different dance to it and that way it was a little bit more entertaining at the end there was a little bit of there was like a hip-hop bass drop in there and I guess that's just like a recognizable beat that would be like more like a crowd pleaser or something like that. Our job as like a as a Bhangra team in the 20th century in the United States is to take something traditional that's part of our culture and to make it entertaining so it spreads the name of our culture, people understand it more, people enjoy it. For someone interested in joining the Bhangra club or auditioning or just watching you guys perform, how can they do that? Uh, we absolutely we encourage everybody to come try out. Bhangra is not something that just um, it's not something that just Punjabi people can do. It's not something that just Indian people can do. There there are various races that are all very good at Bhangra. It's Bhangra is just the same as any dance. Like anybody can learn. Uh, we have tryouts once a semester, and we have a Facebook group where we update where we perform, when we're going to perform. There are like various shows at NC State, Chapel Hill, up and down the East Coast. We compete. Anybody can come to any of them. Well, thank you for stopping by, and uh, it was you. a pleasure to talk to you guys. And uh, there's a competition this Saturday uh, called BPD Versa Punjabda. It's uh, held in downtown Raleigh at the Progress Energy Center. So uh, we're exhibitioning there, so come out and watch us and stay Bhangra Perform. All right, thank you guys. Thank you very much. And according to the uh, Geet Bazaar, which is aired on Sunday from 10 to 2 and specializes in Hindi music, NC State did not place, but UNC got third. Huh. Anyway... The Windover has been NC State's premier literary magazine for many years, and every spring it is offered free of charge around campus. Here at Eye on the Triangle, we wanted to bring you some of the voices of the authors reading their original work here on the show. This year, we, this week, we will be hearing from Selma and a bit of her unique style of poetry. I'm joined here in the studio today with a poet. She uh, performed at the open mic night for Windover, and now she's joining us today. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Selma. And you... Uh, do a different type of poetry than we've heard so far on our show, correct? I do spoken word. Now, kind of describe that for us. Uh, spoken word is basically, it's poetry, but it's mostly like imagery. You like take people to a place where all they can see is your words, and they get so into the story that they're in the emotions, and they feel everything that you're saying. Now, you, uh, you do this professionally, right? I don't know professionally, but I do slams, and I do a lot of 
open mics when I can. Cool. So what are you going to read for us today? Um, I'm going to read a poem called Right Before Your Eyes. So, Selma, take it away. <clears throat> right Before Your Eyes. Why is it that if it's not in our face that for death we do not care? If you never met your family, then their blood's to no avail. That last meal they had before they could see the level rise. The wife, our sister, our mom, we care not for her demise. We watch them from the screen of resignation for her distant despair. We're asked to help those in need, but all we can do is stare. Death means nothing to us if it ain't before our eyes. We say it's a part of life, and we are comforted by those lies. Well, what if I told you that your voice could change a whole world? May not change the whole country, but made a difference to that little girl. Maybe she's your little sister with tears streaming from her eyes. She cries not for her missing doll, but for the family who left her behind. She is alone and cold, and there's no one's hand she can hold. Without food, without clothes, without a family, without a home. She is lost and does not know what to do. So she shall sit there and wait till her time is through. We say, someone will help her. Well, why can't that someone be you? Why do we pass off the responsibility when the weight rests on us all? Whatever happens, united we stand, divided we fall. Because we do not know her or see her, she doesn't exist. Because when you have no attachments, the thoughts get dismissed. Our minds are self-centered and egocentric. Our petty problems are epidemic. The heavy workload is our hectic. But we are human, and this is expected. But she is too, and so we've got to try. Instead of turning our heads away, we should open our eyes and realize that her blood is our blood. And when she sheds her tears, our eyes also flood. See, we're interconnected at the very least. So when one of us falls, we all meet defeat. So pick your little sister up. Wipe the tears from her face. Reassure her. Tell her things are going to change. And they're going to change starting with you. Because as someone once said, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, how does one develop a piece like that? Um, you think about the, the reason for it. And the reason, personally, because uh, I was asked to write this piece for the people who are suffering in Pakistan. And I performed at a fundraiser dinner. So I figured, hey, I don't want to just make this about those people there. I want to make it about everyone who's suffering. So I figured I'd generalize it, make it for everyone. Now, I understand you have a second piece, too, so uh, go ahead. We're all ears. Sure. All right. Journal of Miss Grinnan Barrett. The other day, I was driving down the highway, and I was thinking of him for the first time in a long time. I looked down at me to see what had triggered his memory. I looked down to see the tattooed heart on my left forearm from the second time he'd said, I love you. Flashback to the first month, the golden age, you could say. Walking hand in hand, me with an unknown destination, he finally stopped us at a tattoo parlor. I looked at him and said, I don't want to get a tattoo. His response was, but I love you. And that was all it took. Back to the present, as I made my way into the next lane to cut off the guy who'd just done me the same deed. My right forearm flashed before my eyes, showing me twenty faded cuts, one for each time he'd said, it'll never happen again. Flashback to the second month, when the age of gold quickly faded dark. Walking through downtown, hand clutched around my purse, I looked over at the tattoo parlor reminiscingly, and that's when I spotted him. My heart stopped and kick-started into overdrive because he's walking hand in back pocket with some girl. I waited that night for a day and invited him inside, starting my screaming match, hurling my words at him, trying to cut through the unfazed demeanor he held. He screamed, she's just a friend. I pleaded, I know what I saw. His eyes flashed. Are you calling me a liar? I started again, I know what? 
I never finished that sentence because that hand, that sweet hand that I held in mine, the same arm home to the love heart came down hard across my face. And as I staggered away, I imagined I could see the Milky Way before the whole world took on a red haze. And through that haze, I could faintly hear, I'm sorry, that'll never happen again. But I love you too much to let you go. That night when the nightmare seemed over, I went to my bathroom and carved the night's events into my arm, and from then on rewrote them every night so that those clear-cut memories would always stay fresh. Back to the present, car fueled by my own pain going 95 and a 55, car stopped 100 yards away from me, but I hadn't noticed. I rear-ended the guy in front of me. He got out of his car screaming incoherently. I pleaded, I'm sorry. He bellowed, why are you going so fast? Flashback to the first night. The new age, so to speak, moving so fast as if in a race. The front door, the stairs, and my bedroom door already in his dust. Now he goes to overtake the bed and the buttons on my jeans before I finally speak. No, not yet. I don't want to go so fast. He says, it's okay. I'll never hurt you because I love you. I froze and he took advantage of that moment. And that was all it took. Back to the present. The guy says his car is fine. I said, minus two. He said, you want to call the police? I said, no. I'm good. Flashback to our six-month anniversary, going to dinner accompanied by our fake smiles, trying to enjoy an evening that seemingly would never end. At the end of dinner, he pulled out a velvet box and slid it across the table to me. He said to me, I love you. Will you be my wife? And as I looked into his eyes, I saw his real question, will you be my slave? I said, sorry, I can't. And I got it quickly and left. And through my shock, I never heard his heavy footfalls. So that the only thing that ever alerted me to his presence was the pain. He kicked, punched, and slapped enough till I was near unconsciousness. He left me in the alleyway with his last words of, I never loved you anyway. Back to the present. As I sat in my car on the shoulder of the highway, I try to figure out if I really am okay after all these years. And as I look at all the memories and stories my very body portrays, I can't be sure. So I pull down the overhead mirror and look at my face to see all the memories and stories my very eyes portray. And despite the powerful river trying to break through, the dam remains in taste because behind it all in my eyes, I see strength. The words I love you stumble out through my lips as I am reassured by my own face. I love you, I said again, with the innate strength. And that was all it took. Soma, thank you so much for coming in today. No problem. The time is 7.59, and that just about wraps up this week's edition of I'm the Triangle. I want to thank Taylor Barber, Tyler Vrannon, Jacob Downey, Tommy Anderson, David, and Nick Matt Gardner, Kyle Jones, Margaret May, Dr. Sheila Smith-McCoy, Eric Scholes for their contributions, the technician for their help and collaboration, the Windover for their authors, assistant director Mark Herring, NC State Bonger, Krispy Kreme, the NC State Meteorology Department, and you, the listener. If you have a comment or concern, email us at publicaffairs at wknc.org. Call us at 919-628-0869. You can also find us on Facebook by searching I am the Triangle. If you're more of a snail mail type of guy or address, or, or lady... Our address is WKNC 88.1 FM, Attention Public Affairs, Campus Box 8607, 343 Witherspoon Student Center, Raleigh, North Carolina, 27695-8607. Coming up next week, we'll have a special Love Hangover edition of the program with the chemistry of love, stories from Craigslist, some interviews this week in history, news, and much more. For I'm the Triangle, I'm Chris Chaffee, and we will see you next week.